Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, what's up? This is Jesse Kramer speaking. Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast. This is episode 41. I'm going to start today's episode with some exciting news. I got married last Friday. It was an awesome wedding. Kelly, my wife, and I are uh, pretty happy. We are very happy. Uh, It was just a beautiful day for us. And um, I'm going to share some photos probably through the email newsletter. Maybe I'll just throw a a picture up on the blog itself. But uh, a few people were asking me about that. So it went really well. It... um, I'm trying to think if I can give you a few brief details. The weather was nice, really good. wasn't too hot, wasn't too cold, wasn't too sunny. It was perfect for photos. The ceremony was beautiful. Our officiant, I mean, really blew me away. I thought he did an awesome job. And uh, Kelly's vows were really, really touching. We had good food, good dessert, uh, fun times. And then we had a live band, piano band. So uh, we had... Two people on piano, uh, one person would rotate between violin and saxophone, and then uh, a drummer, a guitarist, full-time singer. So uh, they sounded awesome, and the dance floor was bumping, and uh, everyone had a great time. And you can tell everybody, this is your song. It may be quite simple, but now that it's done. Next, I want to give a little shout out to a couple friends of mine who had me on their podcasts last week. First off, Ben Miller from the Chronify podcast, and he he runs a a software app called Chronify. It's a really cool budgeting app. Ben had me on his podcast. Uh, And then Bigger Pockets. If you're not familiar with Bigger Pockets, it's one of, if not the most famous personal finance podcast out there. And last week, I was you know, honored to appear on Bigger Pockets, their money podcast, to talk about a couple articles that I wrote in the past. So that was really fun. I'll throw links to those podcasts here in the show notes. My friends, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I shall remember this moment until my dying day. The next topic... The next topic that I want to get into uh, is related to an article that I wrote this past week, or really I just published it this morning, I should say. And uh, the article is called, I'm not going to argue with people that are broker than me about money. It's a pretty interesting title. And uh, that title actually comes from uh, Kanye West. So Kanye recently appeared on CNBC to talk about The Gap. The Gap is a clothing store, right? And uh, specifically, Kanye went on CNBC to talk about why he terminated his fashion deal with The Gap. And among other pearls of insight, Kanye said, The Gap only have one opportunity to be able to be a big player. What do you think that is? They have one individual on the planet who can save The Gap. So I'm asking you, who do you think that is? Sometimes the answer is sitting right in front of you. Now, (laughs) very cryptic of Kanye. Who is he referring to? Now, the answer, of course, is Kanye himself, right? Kanye believes that only Kanye can save the Gap. Um, And Kanye went on to criticize the Gap's leadership team, saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to argue with people who are broker than me about money. 
What a zinger, right? Now, what follows are some of those thoughts from one of those broker people, because like Kanye, I'm, I'm referring to myself right now. And maybe you're laughing, maybe you agree with Kanye. And, and when the dice fall, maybe Kanye is gonna end up being right. You know, maybe he is the only person on the planet who can save the gap. And maybe he's right for not arguing with these people at the gap and maybe they're in the wrong. But I kind of want to pause and take a deep breath and collectively, you know, vomit in my mouth a little bit because who says stuff like that? Or more importantly, who thinks like that? I just find that line of thinking to be antithetical to any way that I want to think or I want to approach the world, approach problems, approach financial issues. I kind of get it. I kind of understand why Kanye acts like Jesus on water. You know, I went to Wikipedia. Uh, he's won 273 musical awards from 782 nominations, including 24 Grammys. Very impressive. He sold over 100 million digital downloads and 21 million albums. He's got this global shoe brand that's been a big part of making him a billionaire. He was married to a, a global fashion reality TV icon in Kim Kardashian. I mean, Kanye's big break was in the year 2000 when he was 23 years old. And his life really hasn't been normal since. It hasn't been a normal life. So I understand, I get it, why he says some pretty abnormal things. Because it's definitely not normal to say or to think, I'm not going to argue with people who are broker than me about money. And one reason why is that experts, all experts, they, they lean on other experts. You know, Kanye leans on Jay-Z when it comes to musical taste. You know, on a personal note, a personal level, I've learned a ton from this friendship between Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, right? Bill Gates of Microsoft, Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway. They're both mega billionaires, you know, 100, 100 billionaires, something like that. Now, they have a bunch of talks on YouTube where they talk about um, interesting business concepts, interesting investing concepts. And among those other benefits, their friendship has led to the giving pledge, whereby dozens of billionaires have agreed to leave most of their wealth to charity after they die. And that's uh, over $600 million and counting is going to be left to charity because of the giving pledge that, that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett started. So I can only imagine if in the mid-90s, Either of those guys had said, you know, eh, I'm not really interested in talking with a guy who's only worth $5 billion. You know, how poor is that? I can't imagine that. So I, I know that Kanye is smart, uh, but I just imagine dismissing for, you know, in his case, he's dismissing the entire management team of a clothing store when the subject is how to run a clothing store. How stupid is that? Now, my next point is uh, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, that's from uh, Proverbs, I think. I'm not the most biblical guy, but I do know some verses. And I also know that human DNA and human nature really hasn't changed one lick in the last 10,000 years, maybe even the last 100,000 years. The same human shortfalls that plagued biblical people still plague us, you know, even if the, the plagues themselves are now different, no more locusts. And overconfidence has always caused humans to do and say stupid stuff. Just always, always, always. Some, you know, Cro-Mag, caveman, shaman thought that gravity didn't apply to him. Well, his genes are now gone. Some Renaissance grifter thought that he could walk on water. His genes are now gone. And even, you know, I have a link in this article to um, 
I think it was a Tennessee pastor in the 20 teens, so within the last 10 years, who, who thought he was either immune to snake poison or at the very least could charm any snake. Well, a rattlesnake bit him in the middle of their, in the middle of their uh, service, their church service, and he died writhing on the floor from rattlesnake poison. Okay, why am I telling you that gory story? Just because overconfidence, right? Overconfidence has always plagued us. They knew it in the Bible and they warned against it. We know it today and we should warn against it. Overconfidence can be a killer in these cases, but even in more mundane scenarios, overconfidence is just short-sighted. It's the easiest way to close yourself off from growth. It's an antisocial behavior among the world's most social animal, us. There's a reason why human culture for millennia has discouraged this overconfidence. And so what's it matter to you? Why am I telling you this? What's the point? Am I really just hating on Kanye? No, or at least I don't think so. I'm using Kanye as some mix of a pariah and a martyr, maybe even a messiah, you could say. So maybe he is like Jesus, but I don't, I don't think so. Um, because I find myself learning about personal finance and investing from so many different people. Some are old and experienced. Some are young and more technological. Some are hip on culture, much more so than I. Others are immersed in, in the fundamental math of finance. So these people, they might be richer or poorer than me. And as far as I'm concerned, that's mostly immaterial. Because what I care about is that at least on one particular axis, each of these teachers have significantly more experience than me. That axis might be age and experience. It might be cultural awareness. And sometimes that axis might be net worth. But either way, they are experts in some particular way, and I think I have something that I can learn from them. It would be an intellectual letdown to dismiss anyone simply because they're broker than me. And I hope you guys feel the same way. Okay, and with that, we are going to move on to some listener questions. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for doing what you do. I have a question. I'm not a beginning investor. I've been investing for probably 25 years. Um, I have a significant north of a million uh, investment portfolio at Morgan Stanley uh, that is invested in mutual funds mostly. I know it's like 98% stock. And uh, I um, I have been probably most of the time underperforming the S&P. I guess we have a slightly different kind of strategy going on for various reasons. Uh, I pay very low fees, if any, uh, given how long I've been in this portfolio and kind of the types of things I buy into. At least that's what I'm told. And I trust that in the person that manages my uh, my investments. And so... Uh, obviously, the stock market's gone down significantly when you have a big number in there, a big chunk, uh, you know, 20-25% of a $1 or $2 million portfolio. That's a big, big uh, drop in actual number. So anyhow, I mean, sometimes I think, um, you know, what if I was just, all my money was just in the S&P, I would do so much better. Um, that's always historically performed better than what I'm in, et cetera. And the, yet that kind of scares the shit out of me to be there without having somebody who's kind of there watching over things. And I, I don't spend my time changing things around. 
All right, Dave, thanks for the question and apologies that your question kind of got cut off there. Uh, I think I know the gist of what you were asking and I'll, I'll repeat that so everybody kind of understands what question I'm answering here. But Dave, if you ever want to send in more thoughts, by all means, feel free to. So the question kind of has two parts. The first one has to do with your Morgan Stanley account and you mentioned some low fees and I want to come back and talk about that. And the second one simply has to do with the fact that your mostly stock portfolio has been underperforming the S&P 500 for quite a number of years. So I want to talk about that too. So let's start with the performance part. Now, is there a problem that your mostly stock portfolio has been underperforming the S&P 500? My immediate response kind of has to do with, we, we do need a bit more detail, to be honest with you. And I'm going to walk you through a few scenarios and explain where my mind is at. If you were to tell me that you've been underperforming the S&P 500 by a tenth of a percent per year or some really small amount, and the reason is because you're diversified away from just large cap stocks in the S&P 500, maybe it's some small and some mid cap stocks too, and, and that's the reason for the difference, I don't see any problem there. You know what I mean? It's, it seems like a very small difference, and it's simply a function of your diversification beyond the S&P 500. I get it. Another very reasonable explanation would be that uh, potentially your your contact at Morgan Stanley has you invested in some international stocks as well as the S&P 500. And, and generally, international diversification is a good thing. I take part of it in my own portfolio. Um, many well-known investing types recommend you know something like, say, a 70-30 uh, allocation between U.S. stocks and international stocks. Now, one unfortunate downside is that in recent years, especially international stocks have been underperforming compared to U.S. stocks. So if you were in a 70-30 portfolio, 70% U.S., 30% international for the last decade plus, you are going to be underperforming a pure U.S. portfolio. Now, we have to take a step back and say, well, were we in that 70-30 portfolio for the right reasons? most likely the answer is going to be yes. And therefore, is it a big problem that you've been underperforming the S&P 500? No, because you were there for the right reasons, okay? So a lot of times, and we talked about this recently, uh, I want to say it was actually on last week's podcast with a listener who wrote in and said, hey, I've been investing in VTSAX, Vanguard's Total Stock Market Index Fund, $6,000 a year in 2020, 2021, and 2022. So it's $18,000 over three years, and my account is up only $100. What gives? What the hell? This feels like a problem. And we had to go back to, to square one and say, why did that person make those $6,000 annual investments in the first place? Why did they choose VTSAX in the first place? And what we realized is that we have to separate the results of an investment decision from the rationale that went into that decision. In that case, the person's rationale was very, very clean and understandable and was correct. Now, the market hasn't cooperated with them, especially this year, and so the results aren't what they hoped. But that doesn't mean that their rationale was wrong, and it doesn't mean that they should change their investment philosophy going forward. They should probably stick with that $6,000 a year into VTSAX for some sort of indefinite future. And so I would recommend, Dave, a similar line of thought to you, which is why are you in the mutual funds that you're in in the first place? What's the reason? And then because of those reasons, do those reasons essentially justify the underperformance that you're seeing? Okay. 
Now, I want to go back to the topic of fees, just because everybody, when I talk to them about fees, there's a little bit, there's a little bit of a dance going on here. And sometimes people will come to me and they say, look, I'm paying no fees or low fees. And it ends up being true. But other times people come to me and they say, hey, I'm paying low fees or no fees. And it ends up being extremely untrue to a great, the great detriment of the investor themselves. Now, most likely, if you're getting some form of professional help from Morgan Stanley, if you have a, an advisor at Morgan Stanley, I have to believe that they're getting paid somehow. They often have ways of trying to convince you that they're not getting paid. Uh, one of my favorites, and this is a story from my dad, is he, uh, he once asked his advisor, he was a school teacher with a 403B, which are pretty notoriously predatory or can be. And he once asked his advisor, he said, hey, um, what, what is your fee? You know, I see my account statement here. What's your fee coming out of this statement? And the advisor said, well, actually, Chris, all the numbers you see there on the paper, all those returns, those are net of my fees. So my fees have already been accounted for when, when you're seeing your numbers there on the paper. Okay. That didn't answer the question, did it? Right? That didn't answer the question. So a lot of times some advisors might try to say something like, actually, my, my fees are already accounted for. You don't have to worry about that. Or the numbers you see there, that is all your money. My fee is simply skimmed off the top. They'll, they'll have some way of wording it to make it seem like there's not much of a fee being exchanged. First off, there usually is a fee being exchanged. And second off, transparency has to be rule number one here, right? You, you should demand, Dave, a very transparent uh, fee table from your advisor. So I would highly recommend you do that. And anyone else listening, um, transparency with financial advisors or financial planners, wealth management is key. It's, it's a big part of, of the deal. And it's something that you should demand as a client, as a consumer. So Dave, thanks again for the question. If I didn't quite answer your question, Dave, as you had originally intended it, by all means, uh, write me. I've got a couple emails that I sent to your inbox or uh, submit another audio file. Thanks, Dave. Okay, the next question, well, it's really not much of a question. It's just a audience submission. It comes from, I think, Amy, maybe Ami or Ami, but Amy. And uh, as I said, not really a question. Amy says, hi, Jesse. Thank you for the help, all caps. You are the best, all caps, and a cutie pie. Again, all caps. Enjoy your day. Well, Amy, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad you appreciate the help. And uh, I'm glad you think I'm the best, and uh, I'm glad you think I'm a cutie pie. I really appreciate those kind words. For what it's worth, I think my wife Kelly also thinks I'm a cutie pie. Um, and sometimes she thinks I'm the best. So it's always nice to get a compliment. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for reading, and thank you for listening. Uh, before I go on to the next question, I want to give a shout-out to Paul from Yorkshire, England. Paul I did get your question. Paul sent in a really, a really solid four-part question that I am excited to answer, Paul. I just think for the sake of time, 
I'm going to postpone your answer to next week's episode rather than having this episode go super long and next week's be shorter. So Paul, I'm going to dig into your question next week. So stay patient with me. It's answer is on its way. Answer is on its way. Um, but the last question I'll answer this week is from Christina. And Christina says, hi, Jesse, I have a question for you. I'm graduating in May. So I assume uh, Christina is a college senior. And she just accepted her very first job offer. Congratulations to you, Christina. Congrats. Uh, it's very exciting. But as I was looking over the employee benefits, it got me thinking about all the different savings accounts that exist. A Roth IRA, a 401k, an HSA, high yield savings. And these are the ones that I'm aware of anyways. And it's got me feeling very overwhelmed. So I have a few questions related to this. The first question, how do I know how much to contribute to each account? I know the general rule of thumb is about 20% savings if we're following the 50-30-20 rule, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. And then Christina's second question is, should I be contributing some amount to each of these each month, or should I focus on reaching the maximum for one account first and then move on to the next one? Thank you, Christina. Christina, awesome, awesome question. Congrats on the first job offer. That's very cool. And congratulations on being a college senior. I hope you really enjoy your year. And this is an, a great question that tons of people ask. So let me see if I can dig in and help you. So the first question is really about how much to contribute, how much to save, how much to invest. You're right. There is this general rule of thumb that I actually think came from uh, Elizabeth Warren, the Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has a personal finance book out there before she was a senator. Hold on. I'm looking up the title right now. Elizabeth Warren book is called uh, All Your Worth, The Ultimate Lifetime Money Plan, and she wrote it with her daughter. She has another book out there called The Two Income Trap, uh, sorry, why middle-class mothers and fathers are growing broke. So the two-income trap is a pretty cool one, actually, and real quick, it's basically this idea that uh, families with two relatively equal incomes or even sometimes unequal incomes, families with two incomes, they build their lifestyle to spend, roughly speaking, too much money, every single dollar they have. And then when one parent maybe unfortunately loses their job or goes on a temporary disability, when something happens to one of the incomes, their lifestyle is, is heavily damaged because now they don't have enough income to support their previous lifestyle. So instead, what Senator Warren recommends is that you build your lifestyle around one person's income in the family. It means you have to tighten the boots a little bit. It's certainly a little bit harder than living off of both incomes, but it provides that safety net. It's kind of a built-in emergency fund. Anyway, then in the other uh, book, All Your Worth, I believe this is where Senator Warren uh, recommends the 50-30-20 savings plan. 50% of your net pay goes to quote-unquote needs, 30% goes to wants, and the remaining 20% goes to long-term savings. So this is why Christina is asking about saving 20%. Listen, 20% is a great number, Christina, but it's going to be different for every single person. So what I would recommend, Christina, is, uh, and this is going to be related to your second question as well, you can consult the financial order of operations, which I have a, a PDF on my website that you can download for free to get that. And the financial order of operations is going to kind of help you direct your money, steer your money. And one of the first things you're going to want to do, Christina, you're going to want to build an emergency fund. 
and you're going to want to make sure that your monthly budget is covered, okay? After that, any excess money after those two things, you can probably start investing that money or at least putting it away to long-term savings. So let's say, let's, let's have an example here. Let's say, Christina, that your monthly budget is about $4,000 a month, okay? That's how much you spend between college loans, food, housing, etc. And um, you decide that you want to have an emergency fund that's four months worth, worth of expenses. So the first thing you're going to want to do is save about $16,000 in your high-yield savings account, okay? That might take you a few months. It might take you a year to get to that point. Totally understandable. Once you've got your emergency fund set, you're going to be sitting there and you're going to be saying, cool, my income is about $6,000 per month after I pay all my taxes, but I'm only spending four. What do I do with this remaining $2,000? That's where you start to invest, okay? That's when you really want to start investing some money. So how do you want to invest or what's the order of operations of investing? Again, this gets into the second part of your question, whether you should be focusing on a little bit into each account or one account first, then another. This question is also answered by the financial order of operations, okay? So for most people, for most Americans, I should say, the number one way for you to invest is to get your full employer match in your 401k. It's free money that's sitting out there. If you're not familiar, the way it usually works is that your employer will say, hey, Christina, up to the first $4,000 that you contribute to your 401k this year, we are going to match you one for one and give you another $4,000. It's free money and you got to take advantage of it, okay? So usually that, that comes first. After that, different people have different opinions. Now, if you have access to a health savings account, uh, which has a ton of tax advantages to it, some people would say, your next money should go into a health savings account because of all the long-term tax advantages there. Other people might say those next dollars should go into a Roth IRA if you can open one of those. Um, Roth IRAs means you pay some taxes now, but then your money grows tax-free, and when you retire and you want to withdraw that money, it's tax-free. Really nice. Other people would say, well, some of your money should go into a taxable brokerage account. Now, a taxable brokerage account means you do pay taxes now, and when you sell those uh, investments, you have to pay capital gains tax based on however much those investments have grown. But the nice thing about a taxable brokerage account is that it's fully flexible. You can buy and sell whenever you want. There are no age restrictions. There are no limits based on how much you can contribute per year. Okay, so... I'm kind of telling you that you have lots of options and I'm not really giving you any specifics because I don't fully know your situation, Christina, but I can tell you what I do and I'm happy to tell you what I do. My first thing that I do is I get my full employer match on my 401k and then I pause. I don't put any more money in my 401k after that match. After that point, I get full benefits from my HSA, which is $3,500 a year. So that comes out of my paycheck every two weeks. And then after that, I put $500 a month into my Roth IRA, hitting my $6,000 annual limit, okay? And then if I were to have excess money after that, I would go back to the 401k and put more money in there because the 401k, the Roth IRA, the HSA accounts, they all have tax advantages. 
that at my current tax bracket get me roughly an extra 20 cents, 22 cents on the dollar. So that's a pretty good benefit to invest in those accounts. If I were to max out all of those accounts, then I would look at the taxable brokerage account next. Uh, which That's the fully flexible account. It doesn't really have any tax benefits, but it's fully flexible. So that's what I do, Christina. Um, it seems like a fairly rational and smart way for me to go about it, and it might be rational and smart for you to go about it too. So I hope that helps. And also, Christina, if you're interested, I put together this PDF document where, let me pull it up here. It's got, um, let's see, three, six, it's got 10 different columns, and then it's got 12 different rows. Each column represents a different type of account, taxable brokerage, IRA, Roth IRA, 401k, 529 plan, etc., etc. And then each row asks a different question about this account. Like, what's the purpose of the account? How are contributions taxed? How are withdrawals taxed? Etc., etc. So it's just kind of a, a rubric, a metric, a grading system for all these different accounts that helps explain what they're for, how they work, how they're taxed, all that good stuff. So if you're interested in that, uh, drop me an email, send me a tweet, and I'm happy to send that off to you. Okay, thank you guys for the awesome, awesome questions. Um, listeners, if you can't tell, I really like answering your questions, so feel free to send them in. You can record an audio file on your phone and send it to my email, jesse at bestinterest.blog. You can go right to my podcast website, which is on the blog, and you can. there's this little thing there called the SpeakPipe link, and you can just click that link and record your question directly into your phone or your computer. Or you can just email me your question and I'll read it aloud here. So thank you guys for sending questions. Uh, you know, apologies to Kanye West if I offended you. Um, now, he doesn't really argue with people broker than him, so he probably won't hear this. But just in case, Kanye, love the music. Hope you're doing well. Sorry things didn't work out for The Gap. Consider listening to more people in your life. Just two cents from Rochester, New York. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode number 41 of the Best Interest Podcast. Mm-hmm.